The Devil's Signature by A. Ellis Hennyberger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Devil's Signature by A. Ellis Hennyberger. It was the last night of my summer vacation. Within the ballroom of the mountain resort, crowds of young people were gliding languidly to the strains of Home Sweet Home, a favorite ruse of the rural musicians to announce the end of the evening's gaieties. It meant more than that to me. It meant goodbye to the mountains and trout streams. It meant town again and the dull grind of a newspaper office, for I handled the police end of a big Baltimore journal. As I stood on the veranda gazing gloomily down the vista of electric globes that marked the path of the river road below, a shadow fell across the broad band of light issuing from the ballroom window, and I turned to face Ethel Vandiver. "'Mr. Sanford!' she exclaimed in a voice that was plainly agitated. "'How you startled me!' "'Whom were you expecting to find?' I inquired, somewhat amused at having caught such a charming girl as Ethel in an escapade. "'Shh!' she whispered, coming up and placing two dainty fingers on my lips. "'Someone is going to meet me here tonight. You knew I'm returning home in an hour or so. I'm awfully glad to have seen you again, though you did not come near me tonight or ask me to dance.' Ethel had a divine pout. "'I guess, you know, I don't dance,' I replied. And you were surrounded by so many young gallants that I contented myself with admiring you at a distance. That sounds like a bachelor, she said with an attempt at gaiety. But I noticed her eyes furtively sought out each corner of the veranda. I didn't exactly relish the situation, and soon made my adieus, leaving her standing there alone, looking out into the night. Later, when I ran across Douglas Hamilton in the billiard room, I felt I knew the secret of that rendezvous. I could not but remember that previous to this evening I had seen neither Ethel Vandiver nor Douglas Hamilton since the university finals of 1890-blank, when all the college world was talking of the rapt devotion shown by Dizzy Doug for the little Richmond Bell with a titch and red hair and big gray eyes who had taken the arcades by storm. She was then a winsome slip of a girl just out of a convent and catching her first breath of real life. That Douglas Hamilton was a devilish sort of a chap placed him at no disadvantage in her eyes. In fact, tales at which staid professors and their wives frowned rather added to her interest in the handsome prodigal. The worst that could be said of Douglas of those days was that he was a good fellow. When the college bell had been found suspended from the awning in front of Morrison's bookstore at the foot of the grounds, folks shook their heads and said, Hamilton again or when the Z.T. coat of arms appeared on the cupola of the rotunda, it was Doug's work in overtime, and the chances were at that moment that the culprit was in a back room in Mark's place, narrating the escapade to a choice party of fellow roisterers. Then would come repentance, and weeks when Hamilton rarely would be seen, weeks when no latch-string hung outside his door, and his life was a sealed book even to his intimates. During such periods he was another man, morose and studious. Always at examination time he came out with flying colors, and that fact alone kept him in college. The faculty forgave him for the marks he made. 
was with the advent of Ethel Vandiver that Douglas Hamilton seemed to take on a new lease of life. From the moment he saw her, I believe, she became the ruling passion of his life, and when I ran across them on the lawn during commencement of that year, and noted, as they sat in the shadow of a mighty elm, how scant the space between the crown of golden hair and his own dark curls, I felt that a happy future was in store for my friend, for he was my friend, and I inwardly congratulated him. "'Doug, you old reprobate!' I exclaimed as I let him out into the open. "'Tell me what you've been doing with yourself during the past two years.' Hamilton smiled. It wasn't a particularly happy smile. "'Chasing. Chasing Ethel most of the time,' he replied dejectedly. "'Indeed. I thought she liked you well enough over there at Charlottesville,' I said banteringly. "'It's the governor, Billy. He's got no manner of use for me.' took Ethel to Europe to divert her mind and all that. Then he told me how he had graduated in law and was practicing in a forsaken little town not many miles from that very spot. He'd met with some success, but not enough, I gathered, to satisfy old Vandiver. I thought I detected something about Hamilton's eyes that suggested another reason for Major Vandiver's dislike, and the suspicion was not dispelled when, after we had entered the café at my invitation, I saw him pour a drink of liquor that made the bartender stare. "'I'm a little unnerved tonight,' he said to me, half apologetically. I wanted to ask him more about Ethel and the meeting on the veranda, of which I felt assured, but on second thought I dismissed the idea. I did not see Hamilton next morning, for I was busy packing my one trunk and bidding adieu to the friends I had acquired during my two weeks' stay at the Springs. The stage left at two o'clock, but it must have been about one, I think, when I got the following telegram relayed by telephone from Rockville, the nearest station. Sensational murder at Madison. Cover fully. Wire night report by ten. Wilson. Wilson was telegraph editor of the Planet, and I wasn't at all sorry for the diversion. Madison was not more than twelve miles distant on a little railroad that ran down the valley from Harper's Ferry. It was about two when I left the springs in an open buggy, and four when I pulled up in front of the county jail. An undersheriff met me. Yes, there had been a murder at Hilltop. A French woman killed. He didn't know any particulars, all the principal officers being at the scene. Half an hour later I was entering the grounds. Hilltop was one of those delightful southern homes which had survived the ravages of war and reconstruction. It stood back a mile from the road, and the driveway, bordered by elms and oak trees, was surrounded by rich farming lands. The mansion was colonial in design, with massive pillars, and the negro quarters in the rear gave the place an atmosphere keenly relished by all lovers of the old southern regime. The house itself was of brick, two stories high, with two-story wings extending on both sides, and forming a courtyard through which a rose-bordered pathway led up to the portico. As I alighted from the buggy, another rig dashed up, and to my surprise and pleasure, for I didn't know exactly what was in store for me, I saw that one of its occupants was John Huff, a Baltimore detective I knew well, and with whom I had been in several previous adventures. "'Huff, by all that's marvelous, how did you get here?' I cried, grasping his hand. I might ask the same of you, Billy. All I know is this. And he handed me a telegram. Dinsmore's Detective Agency, Balto. Send one of your best men at once on murder case. Expense no object. Take first train. R. K. Vandiver. Vandiver? 
I exclaimed in amazement. Could this be the home of Ethel Vandiver? Murder? At this moment a portly old gentleman walked hurriedly down the steps. I'm Major Vandiver, he said. I suppose you, or one of you, glancing from one to the other, is from Dinsmore's. I'm Detective Huff, replied my companion, and this is Mr. Sanford, reporter for the planet. Indeed, exclaimed the Major, eyeing me doubtfully. Oh, I'll vouch for this young man, said Huff, taking him by the arm, and we followed our host into the library, a spacious room in the east wing of the mansion. From the library a door led into a bedroom, and we could see two men, one of whom was the coroner, leaning over the corpse of a woman. The Major related the story with as much calmness as he could muster. He and his daughter had returned from Europe recently, bringing with them Marie Lefebvre, a French maid. Not desiring to remain in Richmond during the heated season, the Major, who had purchased Hilltop the winter previous, brought Ethel and the maid there for the remainder of the summer. This was their third day in the mountains. The first night had been passed quietly at Hilltop, but on the second the Major and his daughter had driven to the springs, returning about midnight. For some reason Ethel had expressed a disinclination to occupy her own room, and slept in one adjoining his on the second floor, assigning her bed to the maid. About two o'clock, he should judge, the household had been awakened by blood-curdling shrieks from the first floor, and followed by his servants he had rushed downstairs in scant attire, burst into the room, and found the maid weltering in her own blood and breathing her last. The apartment had been searched immediately, but no one had been found. The screen fastings of the windows were intact, and it had been necessary to burst the lock in order to enter. The key, too, was on the inside. To add to the mystery, no weapon of any description had been discovered. The crime was peculiarly brutal, and appeared to be the work of a madman. The woman had been stabbed twice in the region of the heart, and her head and face were fearfully beaten. The bed resembled a shambles, but only one splash of blood had reached the floor. Major Vandiver was completely unnerved as he concluded. To think, he exclaimed, that but for a caprice it would have been my little girl. And that poor woman, how can I explain such a thing to her people in France? They'll never believe it. There's something more than wrong about this, Mr. Huff, I had almost said. Something supernatural. Then he told us how Ethel had been taken in hysterics to the home of a neighbor, and how almost all of the servants had fled the place in terror. I give you carte blanche, Huff. It's worth five thousand dollars to the man who gets to the bottom of it. As for you, young man, turning on me. All I ask is that you don't make your story too fantastic. Tell only the facts. The public doesn't care for your surmises. I want to be placed right in the matter. Do you understand? I assured him that what I sent to my paper would not displease him, and he left us, taking a carriage driven by a crippled old man I afterward found to be the gardener, who with a negress named Martha alone remained of the half-dozen employees of the family. I stuck by Huff, for I knew of old that he was a newsmaker, a man of perhaps fifty-five, five feet eight, clean-shaven, wiry, with iron-gray hair. He looked and was the typical detective of the old school. And while he did not take the newspapers into his confidence when on a case, he had the reputation of treating the men squarely, handing out good stories to those upon whom he knew he could depend not to hamper his work. He knew me, too, and had confidence in my discretion so I followed him into the room of death without awaiting formal permission. 
We found Dr. Wilson, the coroner, entirely nonplussed. There is absolutely nothing, he said, to throw any light on this murder. I'm free to say I have never heard of such a crime outside of a storybook. There's nothing missing, and so far as we can learn, the woman not only had no enemy, but was a stranger here, and had been in this country but a few weeks. The lock on the one door had been broken, and indeed the door had been driven almost off its hinges. The bed occupied an alcove between two windows, which were secured, as the Major had said. A bureau, dressing-table, trunk, a couple of easy-chairs, and an old-fashioned wardrobe built into the brick wall completed the furniture. The floor, which was of hard wood and carpetless, revealed to the cursory glance but a single splotch of blood. "'When do you convene the jury?' inquired the detective. "'Within an hour. I think I hear some of the panel outside the house. Be careful not to disturb anything, won't you?' And we were alone in the room. Huff went down on his hands and knees and over the floor rapidly. He had few moments to spare. Without, we could hear the voices of many men, and they were upon us before he could finish his task. "'Keep them out a moment, doctor,' he called as the door opened. The coroner looked in for a moment. "'Putting on a Sherlock Holmes touch?' he inquired in a slightly amused and somewhat bored tone. Huff didn't answer, but a moment later I saw him pause and scan the floor intently. His attitude was at first one of incredulity, then of amazement. He looked up at me curiously. "'What is it?' I cried, springing to his side. "'Look,' whispered Huff, pointing to the floor. I looked and drew back in horror. As clearly outlined in blood, as if it had been the work of an artist, was the print of a hoof on the hardwood floor. 2. Hilltop, I learned, had a history of romance and tragedy even before the advent of the Vandivers. Built in the early forties by Colonel William D. Schaefer, it had been known until his death as the Schaefer Estate. The owner, a Unionist, had incurred the enmity of the countryside during the Civil War, and the place had been raided a number of times by Confederate cavalry and guerrillas, who, however, had never been able to capture their quarry. Tradition said the Colonel had provided himself with a secret hiding place, but the secret, if there was one, had been buried with him. At the termination of the war he found himself in financial straits, and at his death the place had been sold under the hammer. There had been numerous occupants since that time, but none had remained any length of time, and all seemed glad to be rid of it. According to the old negress, Martha, the house was supposed to be haunted by the ghost of Schaefer's daughter, who had been deserted on her wedding eve, and who after a few years had died in the very room in which Marie Lefebvre was murdered. This story found much credence among the darkies of the neighborhood, few of whom could be persuaded to approach the mansion after nightfall. After wiring my story at the village telegraph office that night, I made my way along the winding street toward the one hotel the place afforded. I made a wrong turn, however, and pulled up in front of a two-story office building. A sign in one of the lower windows caught my eye. Douglas Hamilton, lawyer. The home of Douglas Hamilton. The forsaken little village he had mentioned the other night up in the mountains. There was no light in the window, but when I reached the hotel and asked Henwell, the proprietor, about Doug, I found him very communicative indeed. Mr. Hamilton, he said, has a room in this hotel, but he left for the spring some days ago and hasn't shown up since. It seems a pity, too, for a number of his clients have been asking for him. He'll never build up a practice that way. 
He confided to me that he didn't exactly understand Hamilton. Anyway, nobody did. The youth, it seemed, had a habit of disappearing at intervals without furnishing any clue to his whereabouts, and it was whispered among town folk on such occasions that Hamilton was off on a bat, though no one ever caught him in the act. I forgot all about Hamilton, however, a little later, when John Huff entered my room, and throwing himself into a chair began to tell me that we were up against the worst specimen of villainy that had ever come under his consideration. Of course, he said, there ain't nothing supernatural about it. I've been in the business too long to be taken by such a stiff as that. The hoof mark, for instance, ain't going to throw me off the track of a real flesh-and-blood murderer. Now he, I say he, because no woman could have conceived or carried out such a crime, he might be able to scare off some of these country constables by planting such a fake as that. I guess he thought that's what he'd be up against. Billy, he continued, leaning forward and emphasizing the remark with his fist, I don't believe the murderer wanted to kill that French woman any more than he wanted to kill you. If not, who was he after? Whose room was it he slept in? You don't mean. I mean this. I want to know all about that Vandiver girl's antecedents, who her friends were, and her enemies, if she had any. Above all, I want to see her and have her tell me why she declined to sleep in that room the night of the murder. When we had cornered the Major at Hilltop the next day, Huff went straight at the root of the matter. It seems to me, Major Vandiver, that there is one person in the world, save the murderer himself, who can throw any light on this mystery. Explain yourself. I mean your daughter Ethel. She slept in the room the night previous to the crime, and for some reason, you say caprice, declined to repeat the performance. But, man, what you ask is impossible. Ethel is hysterical. She's been ever since the tragedy. The doctor says the subject mustn't be mentioned to her. Well, we must wait, then. I wish you would tell me, though, under just what circumstances you came into possession of this property. There's not much to be told. The property was recently thrown on the market by a trust company, and I bought it. I've stopped at the springs near here for a number of years, and I knew all about it. But previous to this week, I was never inside the place in all my life. Who did you find here? Martha, the negro cook, Craven, the gardener, and several field darkies. I retained them in my employ because they had no other home and were old family retainers. Martha once belonged to Colonel Schaefer. Huff took a new tack. Tell me, he said, where your daughter, Miss Vandiver, was when you first saw her after hearing the cries. Ethel? She? Ah, now I recall distinctly. Ethel was standing at the front door, terror-stricken. It all comes to me now, that look of horror, that effort to escape the sight of it all. The girl fainted when she realized what had happened, and this Mrs. Rose, a neighbor, took her off. Now why do you ask me all that? There is a possibility, Major, that this is what we call an inside job, and it's necessary to place each member of the household. Where was Martha? Martha? Up in the front attic. She passed me on the stairway. Craven? He came down as fast as he could after Martha. He's a cripple, you know, and sleeps in the attic, too. Any others in the house? No, that's, that's all. Cook, maid, and gardener. They followed you down or passed you on the stairs? Yes, I told you that. And Miss Vandiver was, as I understand you, in the hallway as you reached the landing. Trying to get out the front door, yes. In her nightclothes? Yes, no. When I come to think of it, she was dressed. 
Huh. What the devil, sir? Major Vandiver, do you believe in ghosts? No, sir, I don't. Nor do I. Is there any one that the death of your daughter would profit in any way? The Major was plainly startled for a moment. You suspect, then, he said in a low voice, what has entered my mind more than once since this tragedy. You suspect that it was the life of my child the murderer sought. It's merely possible, answered the detective. There is no one on earth, he spoke slowly and distinctly, to whom the death of my daughter would be of any benefit, so far as my knowledge goes. Has your daughter ever had a love affair? Serious, I mean. Hamilton! It came to me like a flash, and I felt an indefinable dread as to what the question portended. Then the Major blurted the thing out, and I heard my friend's reputation torn to shreds without the opportunity of defending him. Painted by Major Vandiver, Douglas Hamilton was a roué of the first magnitude, scarcely fit to touch the skirts of a woman like his daughter. He told how he had schemed to rescue Ethel from his wiles, and of the final renunciation followed by the trip to Europe. He did not even know Hamilton's present place of abode, so completely had he lost track of him in the past year. Huff gave the Major free rope, and after he had condemned Douglas to his heart's content, I thought I detected a gleam of exultation in the detective's eye. What next? I inquired of him as we parted at the door. Hamilton, he answered laconically. That night I sat in the library at Hilltop, waiting for Huff. I wanted a good story for the morning edition, and he had hinted that he would have a sensation. I had taken some of the edge off the Major's remarks about Hamilton, telling the detective of our friendship, and assuring him that the man was incapable of any connection with crime. "'I don't want your friend for murder, Billy,' Huff had said. "'I only want what he knows, and I must have that, even if it's necessary to arrest him. But I've got to find him first. The body of the ill-fated maid had been buried during the afternoon, and the coroner's jury was to meet in another three days to consider the case. Major Vandiver had taken up his abode with his daughter at the Rose Cottage, and save for the servants I had the place to myself. Huff was later than he had indicated, and I paced the room uneasily. The student lamp was burning low on the table. Suddenly I heard a faint sound from the inner room, and paused to listen, every nerve in my body on the alert. There it was again a half-sigh, half-groan. Turning the lamp on full, I sprang to the door and flung it open. I was scarcely prepared for what I saw. In the center of the room stood a collie dog, which I remembered to have seen about the place. The animal was crouching as in terror, every hair on his body erect. The head was lowered, and the teeth glistening. Then as the glare of the light reached his eyes, the dog gave a low growl and bounded past me and out into the darkness. Did I imagine it, or did the doors of the wardrobe softly close? Then I recovered and leaped to the spot, tearing open the doors and clutching in vain for a hidden foe. Then I laughed at my fears. The light revealed each nook and cranny of the wardrobe, and there was nothing. By Jove, I believe I'm getting nutty, I muttered as I backed to the table. I suppose the hoof mark will turn out to be a myth, too, but I'll be darned if that dog was. The lamp began to flicker again preparatory to going out, and I had no wish to brave the darkness of that room just then. Hurriedly, I placed the lamp on the floor near the spot where Huff had discovered the ghastly symbol. I received a further shock when I found that it, too, had vanished.
3. In answer to my summons, Nathan Craven hobbled into the room with a newly filled lamp. I had tried to draw the old man into conversation earlier in the day, but had found it difficult to get anything out of him. He had a reputation for taciturnity, acting in that respect as a foil for Martha, who was volubility itself. These faithful old servants had been on the estate so long that they seemed a part of it, and Martha always referred to the mansion as our house. As Craven shuffled out the door, Huff appeared suddenly, and I saw the former shrink as if from a blow. "'Guess his nerves are to the bad, too,' said the detective. He was evidently elated over something, and I awaited his report before springing my own sensational experience. "'Things are coming my way, Billy,' he said with evident satisfaction. "'I'm not going to tell you all, but I'll let you in on this much. I've got Hamilton placed, and I can lay my hands on him when needed.' Of course, I don't know the man as you do. If I did, it might change some of my views. But I feel that after I've had a talk with him and with Ethel Vandiver, I can get a line on things. What are the hoof mark? Oh, you know I disregarded that from the first. What, I said, coming over to his side, if I told you it had discarded itself, disappeared this very night? I'd say you're daft. It may have disappeared all right. Not likely that the old woman hadn't cleaned up in there since the murder. But she'll tell you no. I thought of that myself. Then I gave him an account of what had occurred, and for the first time in my life I saw John Huff startled, startled to the point of momentary speechlessness. If it was any other case, and any other reporter, I'd say it was a plant. But I know you wouldn't try that on me. I thought he entered the room rather cautiously this time, and when he came out I read bewilderment in his face. I don't like it, Billy. I haven't much faith in spooks, but I have an abundance of respect for them, especially the particular brand that is floating around this infernal house. I didn't tell you of an experience of my own yesterday, because I could hardly believe it myself, and I didn't think you would. I'd been nosing around a good deal. I'd had old Martha and Craven on the rack, with little satisfaction to myself. That old codger's half loony anyway. They don't know anything, or if they do, they're mum. Well, just about dusk, I entered this wing of the building upstairs. I didn't have a light and was gum-shoeing my way along when I heard what sounded like a shuffling of feet just ahead of me. I don't think my nerves are what they used to be. I hesitated, and that settled it. I swear something was in that room just over this one. I felt and heard it. Yet when I lit the hall lamp and searched the place, there was nothing. Not a thing. Not a chance for it to escape. And nothing. Yet you heard a noise, you say. It was something tangible. Yes, something tangible that vanished. You know, Billy, he went on after a long pause, if this was the house proper, I'd swear there was a secret passage leading into the room. But what have you? Two brick walls standing free at that point. Could anything be more absurd than a man could disappear through one of them? I let my early report stand for the day's work, and Huff and I lounged about in the library chairs for the remainder of the night. I fell asleep a number of times, always to awaken suddenly, but I don't think Huff closed his eyes. Each time I looked at him, they were fixed upon that bedroom door. It fell to my lot to introduce Detective Huff to Ethel Vandiver. I didn't relish the job, for I had an inkling of what was about to happen. Had I known all, though, wild horses could not have dragged me to that little cottage. 
Poor little Ethel looked the shadow of her former self. Her face was wan, and there was a nameless dread in the lovely gray eyes as she appeared to us in the parlor that day. The girl regarded me at first with surprise, and then, I thought, with appeal. I knew I was to see a detective, but this is an unexpected pleasure, she said to me as I took her hand. You are right, Miss Vandiver, I replied. This is a detective, Detective Huff of Baltimore. I'm merely here for my paper. Then pray let's have it over with at once, she said with a glance at me that I interpreted as readily as if she had asked me to be silent as to Douglas Hamilton. I felt like a dog then as Huff began. Miss Vandiver, I'm forced to ask you some very personal questions, but the matter is so serious that I hope you will see their propriety and bear with me to the end. I am perfectly willing to tell you all I know she answered in a low voice. How long have you known Douglas Hamilton? The effect was instantaneous, and for a moment I thought she would faint. But she didn't, and presently answered him, calmly enough, I met him at Charlottesville two years ago. I think anger at what she supposed my treachery overcame all other feelings for the moment. When did you see him last? Monday evening. At the Springs? Yes. Ethel cast a scornful glance at me. Now pardon me, Miss Vandiver, but I must know in exactly what relation you stand to each other. Must I go into that? she implored. I'm afraid you must. Douglas Hamilton loves me. We were together a great deal until Father heard of some escapades and made me dismiss him. After that, well, he importuned me again and again. That night at the Springs he urged me to go away with him. I wouldn't, and he— Ethel was weeping softly now. The detective waited until she had recovered somewhat. Will you finish that sentence now, Miss Vanderer? He threatened to kill himself. Ah. Now, Miss Vanderer, you haven't seen Hamilton since then, have you? No. What made you change rooms with your maid that night? said Huff suddenly. The girl's pallor increased. I was frightened the night before, she said by noises in the room, and fled out into the library where I spent the remainder of the night on the sofa. I told Marie about it, and she laughed at me. It was upon her suggestion that we made the change. What kind of noises? It seemed to me that someone was walking downstairs into the room. Ah! Which was absurd, of course, as the stairway is in the middle of the building. Then an unaccountable dread came over me. I saw nothing, heard nothing, but somehow I felt I was not alone. Did you lock the door? Yes, I did not close my eyes again during the night. The girl shuddered at the memory of it. The night of the murder, resumed Huff. Your father found you at the front door as he came down the steps. Again that look of dread in the girl's eyes. Yes, I was there. Fully dressed? Yes. You had heard the screams and rushed down ahead of your father. No. There was an awkward pause. Then why, please, were you there? It was a signal that brought me down. Her lip was quivering. I expected to meet someone. Who? pursued the detective unrelentingly. Douglas, she said tearfully. He told me he would give me one more chance. Otherwise I would never see him again. He talked wildly, and it frightened me. He was to give the signal, a whistle, and I was to come and join him. At first I couldn't bring myself to it. But you started? 
Yes, I decided to go out. As I got to the front door, I heard the screaming, oh, such screaming. It will haunt me always, I think. Now, Miss Vandiver, I have but one more question, and I thank you very much. How long after you heard the whistle did you descend the steps? A quarter, or perhaps half an hour? She left us without so much as a glance at me, and with no realization of the predicament in which her answer to that last question had placed the one she loved best on earth. 4. Huff had charge of affairs at the coroner's inquest. Not a word of Hamilton. Ethel Vandiver was not even called to the stand. I knew his game and his contempt for the inquest, which I had often heard him declare served only too often to defeat the ends of justice by slowing the prosecutor's hand. Major Vandiver narrated the facts, and Martha and Craven substantiated them. Then Huff rang the changes on the supernatural end of the affair. Hoof and all. And when he had finished, I told my tale without reserve, and without expecting anyone to believe it. A smile of incredulity passed down the line of bearded, horny-handed mountaineers, and when the testimony was in, and a coroner asked whether there were any questions, one juror arose and said, I would like to know what particular asylum these two men escaped from. The usual verdict of death at the hands of someone to the jury unknown was duly entered, and that phase of the affair was closed. Next day the Vanderers left town. I had Ethel for a few moments to myself in the parlor of the Rose Cottage, and I made her understand that I had no part in the ordeal she had undergone. "'Mr. Sanford,' she said, "'I am going from here forever, I hope. I could never re-enter this dreadful house, and Father is going to get rid of it at the earliest opportunity. Now I am going to confide in you the one fact that I did not tell the detective, and which only three persons in the world know.' I am the wife of Douglas Hamilton. What? I exclaimed. Let me get that again. The wife of Douglas Hamilton. Since when, pray? Since a night in September of last year, the night before I sailed for Europe. Then why all this? It's a long story, Mr. Sanford, and I don't feel equal to it now. I have loved Douglas ever since that night at the finals when you ran across us on the lawn. Do you recall? Well, father would have none of it. And anyway, Douglas wasn't in a position to marry. He was so madly jealous, though, of every man that had so much as looked at me that I consented to marry him in New York. Since my return, he has wanted me to come with him or let him assert himself. But I could not bear father should know I had deceived him, especially as the object of the trip abroad was to separate us. You know where Doug is now? Oh, Mr. Sanford, if I only did said the girl, her eyes filling. I'd be the happiest woman in the world. That's why I tell you all this. Will you find him for me, if you can? He is your friend as well as my husband. And tell him that I am brave now. I am willing to go with him to the end of the world. Even now Ethel did not realize the peril in which she had placed Hamilton. I departed without enlightening her. I was glad she was well out of Madison when Huff burst into my room that night about ten o'clock with a brand new sensation. Billy, he exclaimed, I've got my man, the ghost, real flesh and blood, and caught on the spot. Speak up, ma'am, I cried. Out with it. What the devil do you mean? 
I mean that I arrested Douglas Hamilton on the grounds at Hilltop tonight. Hamilton? Huff, you're mad. And I almost laughed to think how thoroughly he was duped. You may laugh, Sanford, said Huff, much put out. But I tell you, the man is now in the county jail, and the whole business will be public property in the morning. I thought hard. Of course such a thing must be prevented at all hazards. My friendship for Hamilton, the knowledge I possessed, and that final appeal in Ethel Vandiver's eyes all cried out against such a culmination. Tell me just how it occurred, I said presently. In the first place, commenced Huff, you must know that I placed Hamilton at a summer resort near Rockville some days ago. How I did it doesn't matter, nor how I knew he left the resort today for Madison. There's a mysterious sort of magnetism that draws a murderer back to the scene of his crime, and I, I lay for him, that's all. An hour ago, I caught him prowling around the lawn and closed in on him. He fought like a fiend until I let drop the fact that I was a detective and he my prisoner, when he suddenly gave in and had the audacity to ask what I meant. For God's sake, what do you mean? These were his very words. Well, he declared he had never even heard of the crime and fired question after question at me as we drove into town. He seemed relieved to know you were here and wanted to see you at once. And I must see him at once, Huff. You've made a fearful mistake. I tell you I have facts in my possession that will make such a charge absurd. And I told him what I knew. It didn't faze him. What does that prove? He asked skeptically. Even granted he's her husband. He thought she had thrown him over, didn't he? But the condition of the doors, the windows. Hell, Huff, a trained detective like you ought to know, after talking to that man five minutes, that he is incapable of such a crime. I can't see Hamilton a prisoner. Come, what time is it? It was just eleven when we reached the jail, and we found Hamilton pacing his cell like a caged animal. At my direction he was brought out into the sheriff's office, and we three were closeted together. I told Doug just what we knew of his movements and how certain points of the case seemed against him, but I scotched the idea of any connection on his part with the crime. This kind of talk seemed to act on him as a tonic, and he soon recovered nerve and balance and launched into an explanation of his movements since the night of the murder. You know, Billy, he said, I was always a rum sort of chap, even in my college days. I think I've always taken things too much to heart, little things that others would joke over. Then Ethel came, and for the past two years I have thought of little but her. When she failed to answer my signal that night, I went away fully determined to end it all. But when I got back to the springs, I was fairly hauled up to the bar by a couple of fellows I knew, and the next thing I remember was the alum across the mountains. Drink is said to drive men to desperate deeds, but it doesn't have that effect on me. You know the old saying, when the devil was sick, the devil a monk would be. Well, that states my case. I called myself all manner of fools and determined to see Ethel again at all costs. How did I know she hadn't been detained or that she had heard my signal? That's the way I reasoned with myself. I got in here tonight after dark and started for Hilltop. I entered the grounds with some anxiety, I must confess, for I don't know what kind of a reception awaited me. But I was going to put up a bold front and demand to see Ethel even if I had to tell Major Vandiver the whole story. I must have taken the wrong path, for I pulled up in front of the east wing of the building. There was a light in the second-story room, and I fancied it might be Ethel's, 
so I gave the signal she knew, a peculiar whistle, but to my astonishment the light was instantly whisked out, and the entire mansion was in darkness. Huff and I exchanged glances. As you may imagine, I began to feel a trifle upset, but I moved closer to the house, and I gave the signal again. As if in answer, a shutter moved slightly, and a man's face was revealed, peering cautiously out into the night. The sky was cloudy, but just then the moon, for one fitful moment, shot out and lighted up the scene like day. The sight I saw chilled my blood. Gentlemen, if it were my last moment on earth, I would swear the face at that window was the face of a madman. The head seemed covered with masses of unkempt hair, the beard was scraggly, the mouth drooping, revealing what seemed to be fangs rather than teeth. But it was the eyes, cruel, leering eyes, more than all else that unnerved me. For one brief second I gazed into the face of this monstrosity, and then it vanished. I stood as one stunned for how long I know not, doubting the evidence of my own senses. Then I was seized from behind and fought like a madman myself. You know the rest. 5. I, Billy Sanford, had been in some pretty ticklish adventures during my two years' experience as police reporter for the planet. I once accompanied detectives on a raid on an east side shipping office, where they'd kill a man for a nickel. I had, on another occasion, entered a low Curtis Bay pool room, rested its secrets, and exposed and closed the joint through an article in the Sunday issue. But I wouldn't have relished the task John Huff set himself that night. Hamilton and I accompanied him to Hilltop about one in the morning, and remained on the grounds within call in case we should be needed. We saw the detective let himself into the house through one of the library windows. As to what occurred thereafter, I give the version related to me by the detective. After satisfying himself as well as he might that he was unobserved, Huff threw open the door of the bedroom. Everything was all right, just as he had seen it earlier in the day, but he was taking no chances now. Baffled at every turn, the detective had decided that the real solution of the mystery lay in this very room, and that a continuation of the search elsewhere was idle. A careful examination revealed nothing. So far, so good. He had expected nothing. Then he stepped into the library, blew out his light, re-entered the chamber, locked the door behind him, and, pistol in hand, stationed himself in a corner. His iron nerve and years of training stood him in good stead now. The stillness was so intense that he could hear the beating of his own heart, yet his body was as rigid as the furniture around him. It was a trick he had forced himself to learn, and that had served him on many a former occasion. He heard the clock in the next room strike off the quarters, one, two, and then the hour. Was it fancy, or did he hear a sound overhead? Someone was coming downstairs. That annoyed him, for it might mean an interruption of his plans. Then Ethel's story flashed across his mind, and the fact that there were no stairs. The step came nearer, and then ceased altogether. Despite his courage, the detective began to feel a trifle creepy. At first he attributed this to his prolonged vigil. Then it gradually dawned on him that he was not alone. Something, someone, was moving in the opposite side of the room. It seemed the air was a trifle in motion, just a trifle. He leaned forward and strove to pierce the darkness. 
Just as he felt that he could stand the strain no longer, a tiny streak of light shot out and rested for an instant on the foot of the bed. He watched it as one hypnotized. Now it advanced, now receded. Then it disappeared altogether to reappear in another part of the room. Suddenly, the light streamed full in his face and the spell was broken. Springing forward with a yell, he fired once, twice along that thread of light and rushed on into the wardrobe. When Hamilton and I, alarmed by the shots, rushed into the bedroom, we found Huff half-stunned. Yet when we flooded the place with light, we could find nothing to account for his alarm. Everything was intact. Huff had to admit it himself. But the bullets? We had heard the shots, and the detective threw out two empty cartridges on the library table. Yet the most careful search of the room failed to disclose a bullet or bullet mark. 6. The first warning rays of dawn that stole in through the windows at Hilltop found three men still on guard in the east wing of the mansion. Huff and I were in the room above the library, examining for the hundredth time the quaint old wardrobe, a replica of the one in the chamber beneath. The detective crossed the room and threw up the window. The air was stifling, so noxious that we could scarcely breathe. "'There's no use,' he said. We're no nearer to the bottom of this thing than when we came up here. I thought possibly there might be some connection between these two wardrobes. Funny they should be so much alike. But if there is, we can't find it. We might tear down the masonry, but it would be the deuce of a joke, wouldn't it, if we were mistaken? I tell you, old man, I'm sick of the whole business, and I'm going to take a sneak out of this cursed place this very day. I hate to give a thing up as much as any man, but I know when I've had enough. I don't know what directed my glance at that moment to the wardrobe, but what I saw fascinated me. The sun was just rising above a neighboring mountain peak, and a single ray through the shutter fell on the floor of the wardrobe where its reflection was cast back by a glistening point of steel. A step nearer and the focus was lost, but when I ran my hand over the floor in that corner I felt a small plate about the size of a ten-cent piece which was raised just a fraction of an inch above the woodwork. Even as my hand touched it, there was a barely perceptible click, and the entire back of the wardrobe disappeared from view, disclosing to our astonished gaze an opening in the wall the size of a human body. The secret out, the way clear, I started back, trembling as if stricken with ague. But Huff sprang past me, and it was flashing his dark lantern here and there in the opening. In a moment I was close to him, at his elbow, standing on a small wooden platform. Steps somewhat narrower, led down to a similar platform on the floor below. Glancing down into the depths of that passageway, now illuminated by the rays of the lantern, I saw the most repulsive spectacle it was ever my misfortune to encounter. At the foot of the stairway lay the body of Nathan Craven, his figures distorted into the likeness of a demon, his hair and beard blood-soaked, and his eyes open and glassy. But it was not the ghastly countenance of the madman, nor the horrid gleam that beamed from the sightless eyes that made us fairly faint with horror and disgust. The maniac had removed his shoes, and the rays of the lantern revealed to us a sight we wished we might never see again. In place of one foot, nature, through some strange freak, had given Craven the hoof of a beast. End of The Devil's Signature by A. Ellis Henneberger Read 
by Winston Tharp.